Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. Welcome to Girl on the Gov, the podcast, breaking down politics as we know it and removing all the bullshit. (laughs) Because politics needed a (laughs) rebrand. We should recall him. Well, first of all, Welcome back, everyone, to Girl on the Go, the podcast. We have quite the show today, and we want to start off by Sam's incredible segue, because we will just touch on the fact that there is a recall happening in California against Gavin Newsom, Governor Gavin Newsom, who I actually helped elect into office. <laughs> Can we talk about that for a second? <laughs> I actually worked on his campaign, so awkward, Uh, but we will get into like what a recall is and all of that, but we thought maybe it'd be fun to talk about who would you recall just in this life? Queen Elizabeth. The royal family. And you know, you know who else I really want to recall? Who? Britney Spears' father. Add him to the list. Recall him immediately. Oh, I know who. The, the police officer or the detective or whoever in Atlanta who said that the shooter who shot and killed eight people in Atlanta, he was just having a bad day. Recall. Literally, Recall. Absolute recall. Truly. But if you're confused what a recall is, we will get into that later on in this episode when we dive into how and why and when and where Governor Gavin Newsom is being recalled. But essentially, what Sam and I were talking about before this is like, it's low-key, just like a synonym for canceled. (laughs) So. It's definitely like being canceled. It's the government version of being canceled. Impeachment, recall, similar vibes. It's idiosyncratic. Yeah. But again, we'll explain all of this for you guys. Just don't worry. Just be patient. But let's talk about the March Madness of it all. Because you know I was heated when I saw the TikToks. And also, like, shout out to those girls who made those TikToks and just exposed the shit out of the NCAA because I've had words for the NCAA and the way they, you know, treat athletes in general, but especially female athletes. But basically, if you didn't see, March Madness, like, big college basketball tournament is happening right now. And they basically are under fire because these female basketball players were exposing what they received from the NCAA and the tournament versus what their male counterparts received. And some of those were weight rooms that these girls literally got, just a few little dumbbells. And then literally behind a curtain, like just you just go behind the curtain right next to the dumbbells and there is a state of the art, just massive, beautiful, every single exercise machine, weight, anything you could think of. Literally, it was Equinox, just like behind this curtain where these female athletes were like, oh, here are, here's our weight room. And they go around the corner and these men have just like straight equinox level gym meanwhile these female athletes don't even have enough to do like a freaking like at home obey fitness class i'm like looking right now like my at home workout equipment i've got sliders i've got weights i've got ankle weights i've got bands i've got yoga mat like literally more than what they were provided and they are top of the line athletes yeah and then there's also pictures of you know, each player gets kind of like a merch bag. The women athletes literally got like a water bottle, a few stickers, a t-shirt, and like a drawstring bag. And then the, the men got just literally like rooms full of just merch. But basically how this whole breaks down is, and Maddie can speak more to this as a former student athlete, but this showed like a violation of Title IX. 
So what that provides or says is that these schools, these programs have to provide equal amounts of funding, facilities, and equipment. Well, here's the thing. Like Sam said, I used to play a D1 sport. I played soccer at a relatively small school, but still was in a really good conference and like very competitive. And But it's the same, it's the same shit. Like I experienced, like you'd think this year, like they'd be more aware to give these female athletes a little bit, <laughs> even just a little bit more. <laughs> like the pictures are astonishing. And they also said it was because there wasn't enough room and then... Oh, it could you could have fit like 50 cars in the room where the one little dumbbell set was. No, it's literally insane, but it's I experienced very similar things when I went to school and it's just like really disheartening and disappointing that that's still happening, especially at like the highest level too. That is the probably biggest money maker for the NCAA and they aren't able to provide these female athletes who are accomplishing one of like the biggest highlights of their entire athletic career and are just being like literally treated as if they're little high school club team like this is the system like in the NCAA this is how it functions they really make a profit off of athletes in general who are not paid and work their asses off every day and then especially it's even worse towards female athletes so I'm glad that it's coming to light and hopefully it will make them more aware and make them start to change things and be held accountable. But literally a joke, like it's just a joke. It's shameful, it's really shameful. This is what always gets me when anytime something like this comes up. It's what was the strategy discussion internally? It's really bad. I'm like, who is actually approving this kind of shit? But that just also shows how normal it is. Like That's there, a good this point. is so normal for the NCAA to not provide women with like by any means close to what they deserve or anything equitable to what the men, the men are getting. They don't have the conversation probably. They don't need to. They never have. So, but again, this is one of those moments that we love the internet. See this accountability happen. But the other thing that has been interesting this week was good old Miami. Miami, okay. There's spring break happening right now. And the city of Miami actually had to declare a state of emergency and impose curfew to control like wild, wild, wild spring break crowds. Like people literally on top of cars screaming COVID is over. It was insane. And it's like also Miami we know has like really been open. I know so many people who have like been fleeing there just to go clubbing, like just to experience life again. And I just feel like... All of that was leading to this moment of like, spring break is here. Where are we going to go? Miami. Everyone's going there. Everyone's trying to party. Everyone's trying to escape COVID. And Miami has been letting people do that. So this is just, I feel like, a result of, I would say, the last couple of months, especially because, you know, people have been really like literally fleeing there for fun. <laughs> True. And it's also winter. So it's like the idea of like, oh, okay, I need need some fresh air and to like be outside warm weather. And I like, I totally get it. Like I was considering like moving there for like a few months and doing like a little hiatus. And then I ended up deciding not the best like decision. I think it's worth it. I had to just get over that cabin fever moment. So shout out to me. I literally forgot that spring break was a thing. Me too. <laughs> but good news segment. Speaking of COVID, so a large U.S. trial published on Monday found that the Oxford AstraZeneca COVID-19 vaccine is 79% effective in preventing symptomatic illness and 100% effective against severe disease and hospitalizations. But some good news, more vaccines on the horizon potentially. But one of the, you know, kind of other good news regarding vaccines Krispy Kreme said Monday, if you bring in your vaccine card to any Krispy Kreme shop in U.S. stores only, you can get one free original glazed donut. And if you have no chance to get your vaccine or you have not gotten it yet, this will run through the end of 2021. So that is your good news segment for today. I'm pretty pissed. I don't have a vaccine. I know. But also, like, I don't really like donuts, so I don't know why I'm mad. But I like really would love some free Chipotle always. So if someone listening works for Chipotle and like 
can, you know, make some magic happen where they, they bring on a similar program, like, let us know. Yeah. And if anyone has a lot of Twitter followers who are listening to this, I tried my best on our Twitter. So if you do have Twitter followers and you can maybe at like Chipotle, Shake Shack, we, we called out Dunkin' Donuts and we said Dunkin' Donuts, where you at on our Twitter. But if you guys can start calling out some other companies to do the same and maybe we can start a little, a little movement here to get some more free goodies for this vaccination. And then tag us, tag us. And we'll see what happens. Maybe we can all get some free snacks. We're just a few snacks looking for free snacks, you know? Got them. <laughs> I'm recalling us, so. We've been recalled, but no. Let's introduce our guest for today. Let's do it. So. Drum roll time. We are introducing Clint Borgen. He is the founder of the Borgen Project, which is a campaign or nonprofit to end global poverty. So there are a lot of details to talk about here, including foreign aid, how it works, who it goes to, what the mechanisms are, a lot of details. It was something that was foreign to us in terms of the inner workings of it and came a little bit clearer throughout this conversation. So we are very excited for you all to get a chance to listen in. So without further ado, here is Clint. All right, guys, quick commercial break before we get into it with our amazing guest today. We want to tell you about Soli Sisterhood. So Soli Sisterhood is a feminist-based shop that is all about hashtag strength and sisterhood. They believe as women, it is our duty to build each other up and clap for our sisters. So to them, you aren't just a customer you are more than a friend, and to them, you are a sister, which is why they are offering an exclusive 15% off to Girl on the Gov, the podcast listeners, with code Girl on the Gov 15. Solely Sisterhood has also just launched subscription boxes. So there are two options one including the manifestation box, which is stocked with a tea, mug, notepad, banner, and more. So be sure to head over to solelysisterhood.com to shop. Again, that's code GIRLONTHEGOV15 for 15% off your purchase. Go check them out, you guys. We just celebrated International Women's Day. We're in Women's History Month, so take all that inspiration and go check out Soleil Sisterhood. They have some really cute new tees, all in the theme of sisterhood and women and International Women's Day and all the amazing, inspiring women we celebrated the other day. So go check them out. Again, that's soleysisterhood.com and use code GIRLONTHEGOV15 for 15% off your purchase. Clint Borgen, the founder of the Borgen Project, and we are a 17-year-old now, uh, national nonprofit that's working to address extreme poverty. You can think of it as basically like we're lobbyists for the world's poor. We meet with the, the powerful people and get them to do more to address poverty than they otherwise would. So that's really kind of focused on Congress and getting members of Congress to better fund and better utilize U.S. resources going towards these issues. Yeah. What made you, you know, start that? Yeah, I had, uh, so my sophomore year of college, I volunteered over in Kosovo when that war and ethnic cleansing was going on over there. And on the ground, it's just kind of blows your mind how little it takes to address these issues, like the basic need of food, water, shelter for people need to survive. So that was sort of empowering. The disappointing part, though, is you realize that the U.S. isn't doing nearly as much <laughs> to address these issues as I, I definitely would have thought. And so really saw a need for an organization that could put pressure on U.S. leaders and get them doing more to address, address a lot of these issues. Yeah, for sure. I'm, I can only imagine how eye-opening that was and what you were able to witness. Could you speak to that experience a little bit more? Like, what were some of the things in regards to, you know, sort of food, water, shelter that you felt could have been changed when you were there? Yeah. So in that particular conflict, people had fairly normal lives up until the war started. And then they had to flee across the border and live in refugee camps for a set amount of time. Some had been there for, I think most end up leaving those refugee camps within a year. So it's kind of a temporary situation where they just had absolutely nowhere to go and they needed you know, a place to live, a tent over their head. So that, that, in that case, that was the situation. Other places I've been though, it's, it's so some, some poverty is conflict induced. Others is like when I've been out to Ethiopia, there's just a complete lack of resources out there. It's like huge population, not much farming, not much really ways for people to survive essentially. But a big picture is it's, it's everything from, there's a kid I knew in the refugee camp who had a sore tooth. So I took him into the doctors out borders facility there and, the, and they had a tent there in the camp. 
and they couldn't help him, but they recommended I take him down to this dentist in town. So I took him down to the dentist and you walk in this like beat up old building. There's just like one dentist, one guy that works there. He's like drunk as drunk can be at like 11 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> so <laughs> oh, now I'm sure, sure he takes the kid by the hand, wheels, flips him around into the chair, grabs a pair of pliers, yanks the teeth out and shoots it across the floor into like this garbage can, but he misses the garbage can, the tooth bounces across the floor. So, and it all happened like literally in like probably 60 seconds. And so like, and then we're out the door, I'm walking the kid back to the tent, the refugee camps and his older brother is like pointing at him, telling him to thank me for taking him to the dentist. And I felt horrible. I was and like, no, like, no, that. um, no, that's not how it's supposed to go. <laughs> yeah. So that's like one of a zillion examples of like life when you're living in extreme poverty of like, you know, if I go to the dentist, I complain and act like a giant baby and <laughs> yeah. you get like great dentist where you sit there with your listening to music while you get your teeth worked on. But over there, it's, it's you know, it's just a completely different ball game. And that's some of the stuff I think we lose, lose touch with here in the U.S. In, in terms of understanding what people's daily life looks like when they're living in these conditions. Yeah, wow. definitely. But I will say it seems like the similarity is that understanding when someone's drunk is the same in any language that's so true <laughs> just walk away turn around walk out that door oh my gosh well that's crazy but so how how do you guys operate to like what is your day-to-day like what do you guys work on especially like right now what what's going on yeah so we're, we're really focused on getting members of congress doing more to address these issues than they otherwise would so the big part of that is overall appropriations budget. So it's appropriations is the amount the U.S. will spend every year on all the given programs they're trying to decide what to spend them on. We want them spending ideally more on the international affairs budget and these programs that help people living in severe poverty overseas. So that's like an annual thing we're doing and we've been doing it right now. We just wrapped up this COVID relief package that just passed. We've been working on that and we were lucky enough to see about over a little, lower $10 billion allocated towards that to help people overseas fight in terms of addressing COVID as well. So that was that was a, a pretty big win that just came through this week. Other, other than that, there's always different bills popping up that we, we will hop on board and build support for. And that kind of takes the form of directly meeting with members of Congress and their staff. And then also mobilizing people in their districts is like hugely effective. When I first started the organization, I was super skeptical that leaders actually care what the public thinks and they actually yeah <laughs> like when you email those generic form emails into congress those are like surprisingly effective like all these offices keep track of how many people email them about any given issue so that's something we hear over again over and over again from like different staffers and leaders that are friendly to the cause just the importance of having people email in support of specific bills so kind of mobilizing is becoming a, a lot bigger part of it and that wasn't something we necessarily set out to do in the early days but we, we've definitely seen the results of you get a handful of people to email their leader in any given congressional district, a lot of times that leader will end up co-sponsoring the bill. And so that's been, been pretty useful. That's awesome. And then I, I guess thinking I of have these so many leaders, <laughs> I know, like, where do I even start? But one that I do have is you know, your focus is on U.S. leaders. And I guess, you know, people think about the U.S. as sort of a leading democratic force and whatnot. But why, you know, put the support behind U.S. leaders, not necessarily international organizations? Like, why not be like, okay, we're going after the UN and focusing there? Like what's the strategy? It's really scale of impact. So like we've just among four bills we've passed recently, like the Electrify Africa Act, the Water for the World Act, the Global Food Security Act. So within the last five years, these bills have passed and they're already like in 2019, among those four bills that they're helping 165 million people a year at this point. And it's everything from access to clean water to getting electricity into a village. So I, I could never accomplish that as if we were just a direct aid agency on the ground, like trying to raise enough money to have that kind of impact. So it's really scale of impact is, is the big motivation. A lot of these groups to keep one thing to keep in mind, like a lot of them do receive funding from the U S government. So our role in the ecosystem of the, all of this is when a lot of these groups are getting grants from USAID, the U S government agency that handles poverty reduction efforts on the ground. So when we're getting better funding for USAID, it's helping uh, a lot of these groups uh, on the ground that are actually doing this as well. They're getting a lot of resources through the grants. So, and for me, I think just being on our coast was such a political war in general, or situation in general, and just realizing that US foreign policy can accomplish so much or do a lot of harm for that matter. And just recognizing that I wanted to really kind of tackle at the political level, because that's sort of where the, the power and resources are to, to have the biggest impact overall. Totally. Well, I have a question too, just about our country's role 
across the, the world. We'll get into like what is foreign aid in a second, but like, can you first highlight what the United States' role across the world is when it comes to foreign aid and like getting involved in other countries and providing aid there? I mean, there's probably people who are like, don't we have enough problems here? Like, why are we, you know, putting resources towards other countries? Can you kind of explain some of that? Yeah. So historically, aid has always been done for strategic reasons. So like after World War II, when, you know, Hitler had been defeated in Germany, the U.S. invested in the Marshall Plan to rebuild Europe. And it wasn't just done out of the goodness of our heart. It was done with the realization that we didn't want it to be an abysmal hellhole where more people like Hitler came to power again. We wanted them to quickly get back on track. And, and lo and behold, they did. And they're now one of our top trading partners. South Korea, same thing. Japan, same thing. So basically all of our top trading partners today are countries at one time were recipients of U.S. foreign assistance. I think the only one is that isn't is Canada, but every, just about every other country that we're doing all of our business with and exporting to are mostly places that either graduate off foreign assistance. But the other thing we're really seeing too is like a lot of these emerging markets like Brazil, Mexico, China, these places that in the last 10, 15 years have seen pretty good drops in poverty. They're now lo and behold buying products coming out of the United States. They're buying you know, wheat products coming out of Kansas. They're buying Colgate toothpaste coming out of wherever Colgate toothpaste comes from. I can't remember, but you know that city. <laughs> the, I Colgate, don't know. the Colgate factory in America. But you all, you all know where it is. But yeah, really. And so even out here in Washington state, our big employer is Boeing and they make giant 737 aircrafts. And you'd think a product like that wouldn't really benefit from some of these poverty reduction. So even like something that makes, you know, expensive multi-million dollar aircraft, their largest commercial contract they ever signed was with an airline, not out of the US or, or Europe. It was an airline out of Indonesia, Lion Airlines, bought up hundreds of 737s off the factories here in the United States. And the reason is because they, Indonesia has been seeing a drop in poverty, still quite a ways to go. But, you know, to meet that growing demand of people in Indonesia who can now afford to buy airplane tickets and fly places, they're buying that line, the airline out there, Line Airlines is buying up 737s off the factories in the United States here. So it, it's really, you can almost pick any product, whether it's agricultural or, you know, technology and look at where it's being exported to these days. And it's usually countries that have seen a pretty good drop in poverty rates and, and lo and behold, rising consumer, rising number of middle-class people. So. That's really interesting, especially considering that U.S. products are more expensive. So just thinking about the affordability has become available by infusing this foreign aid, essentially. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's definitely, I think the big takeaway of all this is rather for people who don't care at all about helping the world's poor. It's still in the strategic interest of the United States to do so, and both on the economic side and national security side as well, for sure. Definitely. Well, I think that's sort of like the perfect segue. Yeah, like, so I was going to say. In, back it up, getting like some of the granular uh, details here. So to start off our stupid question segment, what is foreign aid? I know we were just talking about it, but like, what is it? That's a really good question because it's a very hard to define. <laughs> so I'll give you... The thing with aid is it encompasses a whole bunch of stuff. So for the purpose of this today, we'll talk about poverty-focused aid. But just to clarify for your listeners too is the, the problem with foreign aid is people will lump in like what we're doing over in Iraq, like war-related efforts, and they'll lump in like random stuff. That, so if it, within the word foreign aid, there's stuff I'm like, oh, that's horrible. We shouldn't be selling arms to Saudi Arabia who's using them against the people in Yemen. And then there's other stuff. I'm like, that's amazing. We should be doubling how much we give to that, that water program. <laughs> so it, it's almost like trying to talk about what is domestic policy when domestic policy is everything from healthcare to schools. Yeah. To, so it's sort of a, oh, that's a, a, a good similar. Comparison. Yeah. Yeah. So it's kind of the same deal of like, it's everything good and everything bad is lumped in this one word. And that's one of the big problems too, is because people definitely will have negative connotations around that word based off of their frustration with the war in Iraq or, or things like that. So, but for this purpose and the issues we're talking about, we're really talking about poverty focused foreign aid. And these are programs where the U.S. invests in developing countries in order to help people help themselves out of poverty. And it ranges from direct humanitarian action, like what I talked about over in Kosovo, where people have just fled across, have just fled a war, they need short-term immediate assistance to survive, to other stuff that gets more involved, like working with poor farmers to increase their crop productivity. So basically providing training to poor farmers in some of those regions. 
So if you're like a, a family earning $100 a year off your acre of land and you learn some basic farming techniques and get access to fertilizer or whatever it might be, and you're now owning $300 off the same acre of land, you've simultaneously increased your family's income and increased the village's food supply. So yeah, it, it's, it's, it kind of encompasses a lot of different stuff into that, that those two, two magical words. Yeah. Okay. So moving on, we definitely want to ask more questions and dive deeper into this, this topic. So in the U S foreign aid is based on a system put into place like back in the 1960s, right? Called the foreign assistance act. What was the intent here? Like, why did it come about? Yeah. So the, the initial idea was at that point, the U S had multiple government agencies that were essentially doing foreign aid related things. So they wanted to combine it into one agency. And this was yeah during JFK's time and it ended up becoming the single agency of USAID. And at this point, there are sort of different agencies that branch off from what USAID does with more specific areas they focus on. But overall, the whole idea was get all the global overseas aid related things US is doing into one agency, which became USAID. Got it. Got it. Okay. So that's sort of that end of it. But then when we think about, obviously, in this context, we think of like US giving aid, but and having their own program structure in terms of how they do it do other countries provide foreign aid or is it just like okay the u.s has got this it's like a, a one you know man show no that, that, that's the interesting part definitely the perception we get living here though right because we mostly see you know news coverage is tends to cover what we're doing it, there's not a lot of coverage of italy gave 500 million dollars to help in congo yesterday so but yeah there's a bunch of countries involved like every hot spot i've been to in the world there's people from there's agencies and governments from all over the world that come together, even like Cuba sends doctors to a lot of these places. Europeans are generally like they, they give a ton. So there's just, so basically, yeah, a whole bunch of countries do this. We lump some money. The U S does the most in terms of how much we give to foreign assistance. But if you factor in the, our capability and keep in mind, our economy is like similar to like Canada's or California's economy is like center, similar to Canada's. So we're just like way bigger, <laughs> bigger in terms of our capability. But several years back, the, the world leaders got together and came up with the GNI gross national income scale. And the idea was wealthy countries would give about 0.7% of their GNI to global development assistance. We're towards the bottom of that list right now, the US among wealthy nations. And there's only five countries that have achieved that 0.7 GNI target and all are in Europe, UK, Denmark, Norway, Sweden, Luxembourg. So in terms of our capability, we, we have a lot of room for improvement, but in terms of uh, lump sum, we, we do pretty good. And that, that was definitely one of the problems we noticed when we when I started the organization too, was the public perception is very different. My public perception is very different from what, you know, you look at, They've done polling on an average. Most people think 25% of the federal budget goes to international assistance. In reality, it's less than 1%. So there's a pretty big gap between what we assume our leaders are doing out there (laughs) and what's actually occurring. That literally leads to the next question, which is about roadblocks. So of course, optics are everything, but what are some of the other roadblocks that you guys find in in getting this foreign aid out there? Yeah. So on, on our end, the big one is just getting, the political leaders are actually, I wouldn't say easy to get to support these. There are some leaders that are pretty adamantly against this stuff, but overall I've been amazed how many leaders who came into Congress pretty anti-foreign aid that we've been able to get more engaged in this topic. And it, the way we've done that is really having a lot of people in their district email them and call them and set up meetings to, to talk directly with them. Wait, so sorry, that, why do you think that they came in being anti-foreign aid? Was, do you think it was a, like a misconception of what it means? It's definitely a talking point among certain circles, right? It's like you're anti-immigration, anti-foreign aid. Basically, it's kind of that just let's focus on us. U.S. stuff. Yes. U.S. us. <laughs> let's put the us in U.S. <laughs> let's put the us in U.S. <laughs> I love that. That's literally couldn't be more applicable. Yeah. So it's sort of sort of that crowd. And so, yeah, there's definitely people that come in. And, you know, again, back to the it's one of those words that encompasses a lot of good and a lot of bad. And if you're just seeing if you think it's related to helping some dictator and, you know, some random country, it would make sense. You wouldn't like it. So I, I don't completely fault their initial uh, thing. But, yeah, generally, once they come in and get more aware, we of how it actually does and how many different ways it affects the U.S., we tend to see a lot better results there. Yeah. And so would this be a bipartisan issue? How does it look like politically? Like who is the hardest to convince on this, on this topic? 
Yeah, people who are anti-government spending are usually the hardest. That said, you know, we've, we've seen some who've kind of gotten engaged on this topic who were not people I agreed with on anything else, if that makes sense. But it's definitely a lot less partisan than I would have thought than I thought when I first started doing this. There's people on both parties who are great champions of this, and there's people in both parties who could care less and don't want to see, you know, just aren't interested or aren't engaged. So I would say one thing we where we've been fairly effective is or you know, keep it nonpartisan. We have people from all sorts of backgrounds of all the organization. And that definitely helps us when we're reaching out to offices that aren't as engaged in this topic typically. What do you think the main kind of tipping point is when you do get those people like on board? Like what is the main argument that works the best for for this? Yeah. So when we meet with them directly, we'll break it down how it affects their district. So like we will go in with data, like what the job, big job creator is in their district. So all, all these offices, it's all about job creation. That's what every political leader, especially in Congress cares about is how do you create job? How do, how can they better create jobs in their district? So that's, and sometimes, you know, obviously I think people sometimes interpret that with them caring about corporations because they get money from corporations. And there's a little bit of that that goes on, but overall they're, both parties really are all about creating jobs in their districts. So we'll go on with data. You know, if, if you're in a district of wheat, wheat farming, agriculture is a big commodity out there. We'll go on data. What percentage of wheat from that area is being exported to countries that have graduated off foreign assistance or have transitioned. So that, that yeah, it's just kind of, I'd say overall, just talking to it specifically to their district. The old all politics is local saying like the more you can kind of show how it affects people in their district, the better. Yeah. I have a question too, like how this work could affect, you know, a very hot button topic here of it, like immigration, um, especially from Central American countries. Is there an, like kind of talking point or argument there of like, let's provide these countries like the aid and lift these people out of poverty the best we can, like that could combat some of this just heavy immigration towards our country that a lot of people are against, but immigration is such a comprehensive issue. And it's not just like, you know, what do we do with them? They're coming here. It's like, how can we fix the problems that they're facing in their countries to even like make them flee in the first place? Is that something you guys focus on or maybe a talking point for some of these people? Very much so. Yes. <laughs> no, you, you hit it. You, you hit it on the nail. I mean, people generally don't want to move out of their country unless they have to, or unless there's I mean, even Americans usually don't leave the country unless it's usually like some great job or economic opportunity. But generally people who are fleeing stuff, they would just assume be living in where they're, you know, where they're from, be surrounded by their friends and family, then like pack up everything and walk, you know, thousands of miles, hundreds of miles. So one thing we, you know, the Northern Triangle countries you're talking about in, in Central America, I mean, those would, there's, there's some interesting data on there, but basically when we cut programs into some of those areas about four years ago, that's when we started to see uptick in people fleeing those areas because, you know, it's very violent there. We had some great programs, a lot of us being done through USAID that were helping address some of the violent violence issues down there and helping provide for people. And when those programs got cut, lo and behold, uh, there's a lot larger increase in people fleeing that region. So that's the part I always find interesting too, because people who are against this stuff, it's like, well, if you don't want him to Immigration occurring here. If you want, if you want less people immigrating here, real simple way to yeah. <laughs> to do that is to if they aren't fleeing devastation and turmoil. You're absolutely right. There's a there's a really strong argument. Lots of good data behind it. But if if people people flee because they have to and they they're scared for their lives, and that's kind of what it boils down to. Got it. I feel like everything's super layered, but those layers obviously get results. So one thing we did want to talk about was some of the acts and bills that you guys have helped pass, including the BUILD Act specifically. So could you tell us a little bit more about what that entails and, um, of course, what you guys are working on now? Yeah. So the BUILD Act, it created a basically created an organization called the International Development Finance uh, Corporation. So that particular program, it provides loans. It, it does a lot of different stuff, but like, for example... They loan out money for micro-loan micro programs in developing countries. So women who might be trying to buy an oven to be able to start a store to sell the bread, you know, make bread and sell bread, they could get loans through that particular program. So it's everything from smaller scale stuff like that to larger scale. So this particular program, it allows companies to work on some of these development projects and get loans to do some of these business development projects that's 
helping in the region, but then also that is beneficial to this to U.S. company as well. It's helping U.S. companies while at the same time helping address some of these development project needs in these regions. And these are typically projects where they couldn't, the U.S. company couldn't typically get funding from U.S. bank or U.S. company because it's considered too high risk. The interesting part about that particular um, agency is the loans get returned, get repaid back generally like at a pretty high rate. So it actually generates money for taxpayers. So it's helping U.S. companies, it's helping in the developing world, and it's actually putting money back into the the, the purse, so to speak. The purse, yes. <laughs> Congress controls the purse, as yeah. I always say. <laughs> we, do you mind also expanding a little bit on the foreign aid that was included in the COVID relief bill? Yeah. It's, so it's everything from testing, providing better access to testing in those regions. And I, ha- I haven't seen like the actual final number. So it'd be all be done through USAID. So typically how it works is USAID would identify the high priority regions, the places that need it the most. And so US would be able to focus in on where they think the need is greatest. So most cases these days, it's Horn of Africa, like Sub-Saharan Africa basically is like a big, big target region overall. Cool. Well, this has been definitely enlightening in a lot of ways. I didn't know much about this topic and I don't think many people do. So that's always like we get excited about topics like this because, you know, the non-mainstream issues that are so important that, you know, need to be talked about more. So thank you for coming on and, you know, sharing your wisdom. For people who want to like find Gorgon Project and everything, like where where can we find you guys? Website, social media, can you plug everything yeah 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 all, all, all the above so we're on it's borgenproject.org b-o-r-g-e-n project.org and yeah i'd love, love to get people involved there's you know there's internship opportunities there's volunteer opportunities and a lot of a lot of ways to participate and so and i really appreciate what you guys are doing because this is a huge need to get people more engaged in <laughs> politics and understand it and it a lot of it is way more sounds way more confusing but as you kind of boil it down it's all fairly simple stuff so keep, keep it up keep fighting the good fight well let's get into the top stories of the week we're back with the top stories we have some big ones today and they just really they need a real in-depth explanation because some of them are pretty confusing and complicated so let's get into it the first story is about dc statehood so I don't know if you've seen this, but D.C. is trying to become our 51st state. So basically, House Democrats put new weight on Monday behind their push to grant statehood to Washington, D.C., convening a key House panel to make the case in the latest sign that the long-suffering movement has shifted from the political fringe to the center of the party's voting rights agenda. So this is a big kind of voting rights moment, but basically at a hearing before the House Committee on Oversight and Reform, local officials argued that the deadly Capitol riot during which the mayor of D.C. was pretty powerless to be able to like call in the National Guard and handle the situation the way that a governor would be able to do. So that provided new evidence that D.C. and its more than 700,000 taxpaying residents, they need federal representation. So The panel was considering a bill that the House passed last summer to establish, for the first time, a 51st state. So it would be called Washington Douglas Commonwealth in honor of Frederick Douglass. And so they would have two senators and a voting representative in the House. So that would also kind of change the structure in which our Senate um, and House function. So basically proponents of of D.C. statehood have long argued that Washington residents deserve representation in Congress. They have noted that the disenfranchisement of the city's residents disproportionately affects people of color because a large percentage of D.C. residents are people of color. But the testimony on Monday underscored how events in the nation's capital over the past year, coupled with you know activism for statehood, have further rallied congressional Democrats into you know kind of near unified support on the issue. So. While House Democrats are expected to pass this legislation this year for a second time, it will most likely be over, you know, of course, Republican opposition. We see this time and time again, honestly, both ways. So basically, Republicans have long accused Democrats of backing it in an attempt to bolster their majorities in the House and the Senate. So again, like if D.C. becomes a state, they'll have two more senators and extra person in the House and D.C. often votes blue so republicans don't 
necessarily want to just hand over that power. And conservatives also argue that the bill is unconstitutional and suggest that if D.C. residents wanted that representation that they're pushing for, they should instead consider maybe like dissolving a majority of the district like geographically to become like a part of neighboring states like Maryland. So Representative Maloney, a Democrat of New York, and the panel's chairwoman said that Republicans were merely opposing the move because of partisan bias declaring that, quote unquote, the simple truth is that the right to democracy should not be contingent on a party registration. So her worry is that they're really just pushing back on this because of the way that D.C. will vote and the power that will have rather than really this kind of statement of protecting democracy and allowing those residents to be able to vote and have, you know, the same kind of voting power and voice that other states do. So it's an interesting kind of historical moment, you know, like 51st state. That's crazy sounding. Yeah, it is. And like, honestly, people can't count anyways. So like, what's one more? (laughs) And like, I think my favorite element of this, you know, I love a good clap back is Senator Biagi's clapback. Oh gosh, wait, stop. So, what did I don't she know if you say? Saw this. Oh my God, I'm so I just, I freaking love her so much. Like, it's so fine. So, this was, let me read what she responded to so everyone has the context because I'm like basically reading a meme and a tweet at the same time, but like, just, you know. So, she's a genius. Exactly. Senator Mike Rounds tweeted, the founding fathers never intended for Washington, D.C. to be a state. Hashtag D.C. statehood is really about packing the Senate with Democrats in order to pass a left-wing agenda, like dot, dot, dot. But her response is, drumroll please, the founding fathers never intended for me to vote. Got the chills. And it's like, God, yeah. she's incredible. Whew. Whew. Wow. I know. Like, excuse me. Like, please tell me your ways. Give me your talents. Obsessed. God, I love her. I love her so much. That is like, I couldn't have said it better myself. Like, that was just the perfect example. Like, what is that argument? The founding fathers didn't want it this way. They didn't want a lot of things the way they are now. But we had to reform them. Exactly. I mean, like, half this country wasn't even under the United States of America. More than half. This is true, too. Yeah, California wasn't supposed to be a state either. But big news. We'll see what happens. And... Let us know what you think about this D.C. statehood situation. And also what you guys think of other territories becoming states as well. Because that is also a conversation about, you know, if you have D.C. becoming a state and being properly represented, why are other territories not? I think Puerto Rico is a really great example of that. I could speak about that for a while, but I won't because we have something else we really need to talk about. And that is the border crisis. Whew, this is going to be a deep dive. So let's get into it. Okay, so basically, like, here are the deeds. The Biden administration is scrambling to manage a growing humanitarian and political disaster at the U.S.-Mexico border. So let's just say there is quite the blame game going on, and we will get into that a little bit. So with the number of migrants surging surging, meaning tons are now arriving that hadn't been previously in this particular context, the administration officials are saying that Biden inherited an untenable situation that resulted from, you know, the last guy, orange guy, but that that undermined and weakened the immigration system, putting them in this current position. So that's their PR pivot, right? But what's really the story here? So basically the question is, what's different, right? If they inherited this problem. So there's one way that they measure this and that is through border encounters. So this is a widely used gauge to tell us how many times US authorities come across migrants. This number has risen sharply since the final months of Donald Trump's presidency. An unusually low 17,106 last April to 74,108 in December. Last month, which feels like years ago, encounters topped 100,000 for the first time since a four-month streak in 2019. So we're taking a TBT and we're giving a little bit of a twist on it. So obviously we see this increase, but why? So 
during the Trump administration as president, he responded to a massive increase in Central American families and children coming to the border that peaked in May 2019. He expanded his migrant protection protocols. It was unquestionably effective at deterring asylum. Coming to the United States became incredibly difficult. Basically, all of these strategies were working to keep migrants out of the country to make it incredibly difficult. So let's fast forward to now a little bit. Biden quickly jettisoned those Trump policies as cruel and inhumane, which is true, making good on his campaign promises. He has kept in place Trump's pandemic-related expulsion powers, but exempted children traveling. Biden wants Congress to provide $4 million to address root causes of migration in Central America, such as poverty and violence, which has driven people to the U.S. for decades, including a surge of children in 2014. Right? So if you're listening to this episode, you may realize that we talk about foreign aid and some of the ways in which the U.S. is able to deter issues from reaching its border. So here's kind of your answer to that. I mean, talk about timely. It's talk like we did timely. it on purpose or something. I mean, we you just, know? we're good at what we do. Like I said. <laughs> we need medals. Framed, you know, hung up in the office. And being number five in Bulgaria. That can be the plaque next to it. Whoever is listening to us in Bulgaria, I freaking love you. Yeah, guys, big news. Actually, shout out to Bulgaria, for real. We're charting at number five in the political podcast section and Apple Podcasts in Bulgaria. So shout out to our Bulgarian listeners. We're excited that you're here. We could talk about how much we love you all day, but we do have to finish off this topic. And that is kind of leading to a question, right? So we have this issue going on. We kind of understand part of the why, but what's happening now? What is the Biden administration doing, right? Trump is out of office. He's out of the picture for this. So what is the Biden administration doing? So in addition to ending Trump policies and seeking foreign aid, you know, that topic. You know we were foreign just... aid. Everyone knows foreign Classic. aid now. How cool is that? There you go. Everyone's informed. The Biden administration wants to speed the release of children to parents, relatives, and others in the United States, voiding detention conditions that drew widespread criticism during searches in 2014 and 2019. The administration was scheduled to begin processing unaccompanied children as early as Wednesday at the Dallas Convention Center. The Biden administration is also stepping up efforts to have children apply for asylum from their homes in Central America instead of making the dangerous journey to the U.S. border, which I will admit is a very smart, less cost-heavy way of doing that, potentially. However, we do have some issues here. It's so interesting, though. Well, first of all, the surge that literally happened basically when Joe Biden was inaugurated because they knew Trump was no longer in office, that there would be looser restrictions and stuff for immigration policy, which it's just crazy that that could really, just seeing that really manifest. It's also just interesting to see you know, kind of the difference in policy stances here where it's like, okay, yeah, Trump technically did was efficient in stopping people from seeking asylum, but that doesn't mean they no longer need the asylum. Like they're still very much in danger and it's a humanitarian crisis and their lives are at stake. And so Joe Biden and his campaign promised a more compassionate approach to immigration. And so he rolled back some of Trump's kind of stricter, more aggressive immigration policies. I feel like this is right now more of like a transition period until they actually take this on for real. That's the other thing is that there hasn't been much urgency on this issue from the White House, which is what's been the most disappointing is because they can handle it and they will and they plan to, but it's just the urgency is lacking. But it's clearly, you know, becoming a crisis down there because they just don't know what to do with all these people. We will definitely keep an eye on this story and keep everyone updated. But moving on, you know, we prefaced this earlier in in our episode, but we want to talk about Gavin Newsom and the recall efforts against him. So California, here we are. And like, how do you feel? Like, are you okay? I don't know. We'll get into it. But basically, California is one of 20 states that have provisions to remove a sitting governor in a recall And so the state law establishing the rules goes back to 1911 and was intended to place more power directly in the hands of voters by allowing them to recall elected officials and repeal or pass laws by placing them on the ballot. So recall attempts are not common in the state, but they rarely get on the ballot and even fewer end up succeeding. 
So a very unpopular Democratic governor, Gray Davis, was actually recalled in 2003 and replaced with the infamous Republican governor, Arnold Schwarzenegger. So Makes sense. I actually did not know that, that he was elected through a recall. So why, why, why is there a recall against Gavin Newsom? So the answer is both simple and complicated. So the simple part is that Californians are angry, apparently. <laughs> a year of whipsaw, pandemic lockdowns, crushing job losses and business closures, you know, closed down schools and the disruption of daily life has soured just about everybody. And so the complicated part is in a state with nearly 4 million people, there are many grievances and from, you know, our high taxes to this raging homelessness crisis. So there's a lot on people's minds, even beyond the pand- pandemic, which is all fair. And then obviously Gavin Newsom is going to be the target of all of that resentment. So basically he is also being hit by the fallout from a multi-billion dollar fraud scandal at the state unemployment agency while weathering a public shaming for dining out with friends and lobbyists at an exclusive Bay Area restaurant last fall. And so while telling residents to stay home for safety, you know, he was out kind of at this bougie restaurant and they took pictures of him and everyone was pissed off. So Gavin Newsom, who was elected in 2018 by a landslide, shout out to the Newsom campaign. Okay, no, but basically he's seeing a recall as an attack on, you know, California's progressive policies and Republicans see a rare opportunity to unseat a Democrat in a state where the GOP hasn't won a statewide election since 2006. So... Where does it stand? Is this going to even happen? Basically, supporters of the recall are required to gather 1,495,709 petition signatures to authorize the election. Interesting. The deadline to submit those signatures is Wednesday, and organizers say that they have collected over 2 million signatures, though many of those remain under review by election officials. Despite this kind of uncertainty, Gavin Newsom has kicked off his campaign to defeat the recall this week, acknowledging the election um, was all but inevitable and labeling its organizers as political extremists. They're loyal to President Trump. And so the recall is backed by state and national Republicans. But organizers argue that they have a broad based coalition, including many independents and Democrats. So we will see. Again, they still have to kind of like authorize all these signatures and make sure they're legit. But when would an election be held? There is wiggle room in the law and numerous steps along the way, but if supporters collect um, sufficient signatures, it's likely to be in the fall, possibly in November. Voters would be asked two questions. First, should Gavin Newsom be removed? Yes or no. And the second question would be a list of replacement candidates to choose from if voters recall the governor. Very interesting. Look, like Imagine what that ballot would look like. But basically, have any potential replacement candidates entered this race? Yes. Kevin Faulkner, the former Republican mayor of San Diego, Republican businessman John Cox, who Gavin Newsom defeated in 2018, and former Republican congressman and businessman Doug Ose. But basically, Newsom for months have has been just like blowing off questions about a possible election that could remove him from office saying he just wanted to focus on coronavirus vaccinations and reopening schools, but he's now shifted into an aggressive campaign strategy where he's fundraising, um, running ads, attacking the recall, and doing national TV and cable interviews. But he argues that the recall is not about the virus response, but an effort by political extremists on the far right um, of the GOP to push him from office. But time could be on his side. And the turbulent public mood could shift by fall. So as things open up, you know, schools, restaurant, gyms, all that stuff is starting to open. California is actually doing really great with vaccinations. We're like one of the top in the world. The cases are looking good. Things are reopening. So there's a huge possibility that things completely shift through the summer and by the fall. So we'll see. But California is also just one of the most heavily Democratic states in the country. And Democratic voters outnumber Republicans nearly two to one. So... You know, it's crazy that it's gotten this far. And I think the one other concern is if this does, like, go to an election, the people who did sign that petition and the people who are very adamant about getting him out will likely 100% turn out to vote. 
and will other people turn out to vote to actually go cast their vote in that election and like save him mm. i think that's the question because it's such like a weird special election so obviously those don't always get the attention that is a great point our home states got some governors that had some popular moments in 2020 and like let me tell you they are just losing the popularity contest not without reason but still 2021 not their year Okay, well, California has its drama, but onto some rather dark and sad news. So if anyone has been sort of looking at their phone in the last 24 hours, you probably were getting these news notifications about yet another mass shooting, this one in Boulder, Colorado. So a shooting broke out in Boulder and they then identified a 21 year old man as the suspect who opened fire inside a crowded Colorado supermarket. Yikes. The court documents show that he purchased an assault rifle less than two weeks before the attack, which killed 10 people, including a police officer. The documents did not say where the gun was purchased. The law enforcement official briefed on the shooting told the Associated Press that the gunman used an AR-15 rifle, a lightweight semi-automatic rifle. In reaction, President Biden has called out the Senate on passing gun violence prevention legislation, including a ban on assault weapons and closing background check loopholes. So yet again, we are having this conversation, and that is the reality that we unfortunately currently live in, that mass shooting can really happen at any time and anywhere like the grocery store or a school or an elementary school mass shootings really just like i can never wrap my head around they're just like so dark and so can be very disheartening but there are things we can do to try and make some change here so to start just some stats and like crazy facts about just gun violence in general in the u.s so gun homicide rates in the U.S. are 25 times that of our peer nations. Every year, 40,000 people are killed with guns. Nearly two-thirds are suicide. More than one-third are homicides. This year, there have been 102 mass shootings already, and it's only March. More than $10 million a year is spent on gun lobbying in the political arena annually. And those who push back on this gun reform are the recipients of that gun lobbying cash. So a few of those being names that we know, such as Mitch McConnell, Ted Cruz, Josh Hawley, and more. And so definitely go check to see if your representatives receive money from gun lobbies. So you can check all of that at opensecrets.org. We have not talked about Open Secrets before, but it's a really great resource to check who your representatives receive funding from. It's important to look at those things of where these people are getting their money from. Then that often contributes to the way that they legislate. So... Here are some things we can do. Little action item that I think is easy. Everyone should do. Text checks to 644-33 or visit everytown.org slash checks to tell your senators to take action on background checks. We will add all these links and information in the description of this episode. But background checks, you guys. So background checks have stopped more than 3.5 million illegal gun sales to prohibited purchasers since 1994. As current federal law stands, there are multiple loopholes though in our gun laws that enable people to bypass background checks. And because of these loopholes, nearly one in four gun purchases in the US happen without a background check. It's like a big policy area where we can improve on and make change on this issue. So if you text checks to 644-33, we can tell our senators to take action on background checks. It's a easy fix that really should be a bipartisan solution but definitely like follow volunteer support donate to organizations like every town students demand action march for our lives and moms demand action we'll add links in our episode description for that as well it's really disheartening our you know hearts go out to those affected same with you know we didn't talk about what happened in Atlanta but similar solutions there and ways to take action so but definitely like follow those accounts too they teach you a lot about this issue of gun reform so check out our episode description for all these resources and definitely go take some action because we need we need everyone so yes that is it for our top stories today do we have any housekeeping items we have some ig lives coming up we do we do so Thursday, aka tomorrow, we are chatting with Joanna Garcia, who is a candidate for New York City Council 
and she is so awesome you guys you're all going to be so excited but we are going to chat with her on ig live at 7 p.m eastern standard time and we have some others coming up but i don't want to like jump ahead too much we don't need to jump you know, the gun, we, you like, know we'll leave a few surprises for everyone exactly which means you have to follow us on Instagram at Girl in the Gov the Podcast because that's where we will be posting that information. Okay, so before you guys go, we have a really great organization that we want to introduce you to, and that organization is the GAP Project. So what is the GAP Project? It is a data-driven grassroots consortium connecting young people with political campaigns on the local, state, and national level. So they have developed an intuitive quiz for young people and campaigns that assess each party's values, interests, demographics, and creates a match based upon their algorithm. The GAP Project places young people, that's you, me, and everyone else, as remote volunteers on political campaigns of all kinds across the United States. The GAP Project mobilizes Generation Z and millennials to engage with the political system, take constructive action to get their voices heard, and most importantly, to vote. The organization is shaping a representative and equitable America and providing Gen Z and millennials with a pipeline into politics. So make sure to check them out if you are on campus right now and you have some extra time and you would love to get involved with a campaign, I highly, highly recommend the GAP Project. They will help you out. You'll take that quiz. They'll connect you with a campaign that really meets what you're looking for and they'll help you take it from there. Yes, yes, yes. But yeah, don't forget to subscribe, rate, review, follow us on social media and keep sliding in to our DMs with your questions, with issues you'd like to see covered on the show. But that is it for this week. Thank you all for listening and we'll be talking to you all next Wednesday. Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description.